0: We'll be reading verses 18 to 27 today. And Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. Well, it's amazing in my lifetime the number of big stores and businesses that I've seen close. And I was kind of thinking through the different stores and businesses that were around when I was a kid, and it's just amazing how many of them closed. And I kind of thought through a list, and you'll remember some of these names, like remember Comp USA, or Circuit City, or Hills, or Ames, Montana Mills Bread, that was a big thing, Krispy Kreme, although that's still around in the South, Super Duper. Bells, Ackerd, Be Quick, Media Play, and more recently, things like, stores like Toys R Us, Bonton, and Sears. And I went to Sears uh, the other day, yesterday, and I was looking through the Sears that's closing uh, nearby. You know, you think about that store, and it's amazing just how far that store has come. I mean, back in the day when I was a kid, uh, when I I would go there with my grandpa sometimes and with my parents, that was the place to buy stuff for the home. If we needed uh, lawn stuff, if you needed tools, you go to Sears. There's no question, you just go to Sears. 1975, Montgomery Ward, J.C. Penney, and Sears made up 43% of all department store sales. 1973, Sears completed the construction of the largest structure in the world, the Sears Tower. From Sears came such brands as, as Craftsman Tools, Diehard Batteries. Even Allstate Insurance started as a Sears company. Discover Credit Card started as a Sears company. And yet now, many of those stores are closing. They don't own most of those or all of those brands anymore. And pretty soon, they'll probably close all of their stores. And you look at that store, and you know it, it kind of was like the Amazon of today. I mean, it seemed like nothing could stop them. Everyone just went to Sears if they needed something, and you should see how far they went off track. And sometimes you wonder, like, what happened? How did they get so far off track? And you think about that with stores, but sometimes maybe you think about that with people too. You know, you see famous preachers like ted haggard or jimmy Swaggart, or you see the sex scandals in the catholic church and you think how did these people get so far off track or maybe you have a friend or a loved one who used to come to church seem to have a strong relationship with god and now it just seems like they've walked away from god and you think to yourself how did they get so far off track Or maybe it's a pastor or another religious leader who turned out to be not who you thought that they were. The Sanhedrin was kind of like that. The Sanhedrin were religious leaders who were members of the ruling authority in Israel. And you would think that they would have it all together. They knew the scriptures inside and out, or so they thought. They had power over the people, and yet they get way, way, way far off track. And Jesus tells the Sadducees they get off track by two different things. There's two things that cause them to get off track. And I think if we look at these two different things, I think it would inform our understanding and help us to stay on the path of following God and not to go astray. So let's jump right into this story. The Sadducees, we need to know a little bit more about them. The Sadducees might be considered kind of an ultra-conservative religious uh, body. And what they believed was they... They only believed in, or at least heavily favored, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch, so to speak. And so they didn't believe in the writings, or didn't emphasize the writings, the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. It was mainly about the first five books of the Old Testament. And they also rejected many kind of supernatural beliefs. They didn't believe in spirits, they didn't believe in angels, and most importantly for our text, they didn't believe... In the resurrection. Didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed that after you died. You went into the ground. Into Sheol. And that was it. And the best thing that you could hope for in life. Was to leave a good legacy. To leave a good name. You know. And that's really surprising to me. That someone who who would claim to be a Jew. Who claims to believe in God. Doesn't believe in any afterlife. You know. And you think about their understanding. And their understanding of God. Had to be really small. Because they believe that either God was unwilling or unable to raise the dead. So there's no afterlife. And they bring a powerful, carefully crafted argument to Jesus to try to get Jesus to confirm their viewpoint that there's no resurrection. And they bring up the case of leveret marriage. And leveret marriage was something that was prescribed in the Old Testament that if... Someone uh, married, married a woman, didn't have a child with that woman, then if he had a brother, his brother was obligated to marry his widow and raise a child for him. And the thought behind that was it was kind of a social thing during that time that that brother's name would be remembered. But also, it was something that was most like a protection for the woman because in that day and age, women didn't have rights, didn't have a way to provide for themselves. And so, if the brother married the widow, that would mean that he, she would be taken care of. So, that was just kind of a practice that went, around, went on in Israel during that time period when it actually has happened in many, many different cultures throughout the world, in, in the ancient world and even some cultures today. But it, that's what happened. And so, they bring this case to Jesus. They say, suppose there are seven brothers. The first brother marries a woman. He doesn't have a child. And so his brother marries that woman. Then he dies, doesn't have a child. The next brother marries that woman. He dies, and on and on and on, until only the woman is left. And they say, so if there's a resurrection, they don't say that, but they say, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? I mean, she had seven husbands, all seven of the brothers. So what's going to happen? How can there be a resurrection if she was married to seven people? See, in the eyes of the, the Sadducees, this would have been proof that there is no resurrection because it's kind of an illogical situation that one woman would be, would be married to seven men. And so they're trying to get Jesus to confirm their viewpoint that there can't be any resurrection. And look at what Jesus says to them. He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And Jesus says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So before we go any further, we need to kind of address a question related to this text. It's kind of an aside, but I think we need to talk about it, is this idea that there's no marriage in heaven. Some of it, that, that might surprise some of us, especially if we've lost spouses or if we really like our spouses, love our spouses, and we might wonder, am I going to see my spouse when I get to heaven? Is this saying that I won't see my spouse, that I won't have a relationship with my spouse? I don't think that's, this text is saying that at all saying that the institution of marriage won't exist. If we have a believing spouse when we we'll get to when we get to heaven we'll have a relationship with him or her we will probably know them and have more a closer intimacy with them than we've ever had on this earth but this institution that we call marriage won't exist anymore. And the reason that it won't exist is twofold. The first reason is, uh, well, there's a number of reasons for marriage. One of them is procreation. In heaven, there won't be any procreation because nobody will die. There won't be any more people added because nobody will die. So that's one of the purposes of marriage. But also, ultimately, marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. It's not just something, not just a relationship. It's a picture. It's an image of Christ's love for the church. When we get to heaven, the marriage will happen. Christ's church will be united with Christ in heaven. And so that picture will no longer be necessary. The relationship behind that will be necessary. The the, the relationship behind there will exist. You'll still know your spouse. You'll still love your spouse. But that institution called marriage won't exist. And what exactly that looks like, we don't know. Got to work all that out, but we know that it's going to be infinitely better than it is in this world. So that's just an, exi- uh, an aside that we need to work through. But see, these Sadducees, they assume that resurrection life is just a continuation of life on this earth. And the problem with the uh, this understanding of the Sadducees is that they seem to believe that God is somehow constrained by the rules of the natural order. The Pharisees emphasized the providence of God. They believed that God was in charge of what happened on the earth. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they didn't really focus on that, or maybe even didn't believe that at all. And they focused on human freedom and human free will. And they believed, in a sense, that man's actions, in a sense, constrained God. In other words, that God is constrained by earthly logic. And so they think, surely the resurrection can't happen. It would create all these illogical situations. How could a woman be married to seven men? Surely this can't happen. In short, what they don't believe in, Jesus says, is they don't believe in the power of God. They believe that God's constrained by their logic. See, a failure to believe in Jesus is really a failure to believe in God's power. A failure to believe in Jesus is a failure to believe in God's power. And that's the first way that these Sadducees and that we can get off track is failing to believe in God's power in our lives. And so these Sadducees create this situation in their mind that seemed illogical, that seemed foolish, that the dead are raised and they're like, nope, that can't happen. That won't happen. There's too many things involved with that for that to happen. And we think about Christianity and people say "Is." Christianity, logical. And in one sense, Christianity is logical. There are evidences and proofs that God's word is true. That Jesus did what he said that he did. And so there's evidences, and it's logical in that sense. But there's also a sense in which Christianity is very illogical. Take this for example. So imagine that you go to a funeral home. And uh, you walk into the funeral home, and there's another person there. And they're just sitting there a little ways off from uh, the body. And they're like, so I'm just waiting here. And I think in about five minutes or so, that person is going to raise up from the dead. You'd probably get a little bit freaked out if he said that. That person might be put in an insane asylum. That's an illogical thing to believe that someone who's dead is going to rise again. And so it's illogical to believe in the resurrection from from the dead. It's illogical to believe that Jesus could walk on water. It's illogical to believe that Jesus could heal the lepers. That Jesus could heal the person born blind. All these things, they don't make sense from a human perspective. They don't conform to the natural order of how the world works. And they don't conform to our understanding. They're miraculous. They're illogical. See, if we can serve a God that's constrained by our own logic, we'll serve a really small God. A God who's maybe a lot like us. Maybe well-intentioned, but really can't change a whole lot. How often in life do we, maybe without even thinking about it, doubt God's power and constrain God by our own logic? I remember thinking back to the time when the church opened. And uh, when we were starting the church, I had an accountant look at our budget and look at our kind of plan for the church. And basically, he said "the the numbers, they just don't add up. I mean, this doesn't really make sense from a human perspective. And if this is going to happen, God's going to have to bring this about. You know, and thinking back on that, you think he's probably right. Had no money. Very few people. How are you going to do this? You're incurring all these expenses. The numbers just don't add up. And sometimes in our lives, we face situations like that where the numbers just don't add up. Doesn't seem to make sense. But in those moments, those are the times when God works most powerfully. When God shows us His grace and His power most forcefully. Jesus is like, do do you think that I'm really constrained by your logic? Do you think that this uh, seven-husband situation is going to really throw off my plan? Don't you think that I've thought this thing through before? God isn't constrained by our circumstances. He's not constrained by our money or lack thereof. He's not constrained by our skills or lack thereof. He's not constrained by our health or lack thereof. He's not constrained by our relationships or lack thereof. He's not even constrained by our sin. He's God and He can do whatever He wants. Through us and with us. But you see, when we start to doubt God's power, and this again can start really small, it can start with people who are devout followers of Jesus. But when we start to doubt God's power, we start to become practical atheists. That's essentially what these Sadducees were. They believed in God. They were involved in the temple rituals. They uh, had a strong involvement with the priestly class of the Jews. But they didn't believe in the power of God. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so, in essence, though they said they believed in God, they lived like practical atheists. God couldn't really do anything in their understanding. He just kind of was. In the same way... We can sometimes proclaim with our lips the greatness of God. And yet constrain God by our own logic. And then, you know, we get to the point where it's like, so why, do we, why pray? I mean, why should we pray if we don't really believe that God can change us? If we don't believe that God can change our circumstances? It can start really small, but it can lead us really far off track. Yet Jesus is going to show the Sadducees not just that the resurrection is true, but He's going to show the Sadducees that He is the resurrection. That through His body, He's going to testify to the truth and veracity of the resurrection that all things are possible through Him. And that's the hope that we can rest in. Not only did Jesus do a number of miracles, but He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death once and for all. And because of that, the power of God lives inside of us. And there's nothing that can stand away in the way of God's children. So that's the first way that we can kind of get off track by doubting the power of God. Failure to believe in Jesus is a failure to believe in the power of God. But the second way that we can get off track is that a failure to believe in Jesus is a failure to know God's Word. Jesus here cites a passage from Exodus 3. Exodus 3. He describes it as the passage about the bush, and the reason he describes it as such is because in the Old Testament during that time period there weren't chapters and uh, verse designations, so it was he was just giving a description of the kind of context of when this thing happened. And we see that in this chapter uh, in, in Exodus, Jesus gives this scripture to them because this is undoubtedly a scripture that the sadducees would have accepted they accepted the first five books of the old testament they were kind of hazy on the rest of it but he gives them a verse a chapter that they would have accepted he says remember the passage about the bush and in that passage god is speaking to moses and he says i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob know what he doesn't say he doesn't say i was the god of abraham isaac and jacob he says i am currently the god of abraham isaac and jacob and what jesus is saying here is that there must be a resurrection from the dead because of that because god is not the god of the dead he's the god of the living and if he says he's the god of abraham isaac and jacob who are dead at the time that moses is uh, is uh, god speaking to moses then there must be more to this life than the grave There must be a resurrection. And Jesus overturns their understanding of the scriptures, even the scriptures that they accepted. And he concludes and he tells these Sadducees, you are quite wrong. James Edwards translates this phrase as, you are way off track or way off base. And see, the charges that Jesus brings against these Sadducees would have been really surprising to them and surprising to everyone around because the Sadducees were supposed to know Scripture better than anybody. James Edwards writes this, The audacity of Jesus' accusation of the Sadducees would be like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing of finance. Scripture, the Torah, and power, the Sanhedrin, were precisely the Sadducees' stock and trade, the two matters in which they majored. In magisterial authority, Jesus asserts that what the Sadducees claim to know best, in fact, they know least. And so Jesus tells the Sadducees that they don't really know the Bible like they thought they did. Even the parts that they accepted, they don't really know them like they thought thought that they did. They don't realize that even in the beginning, there were hints that there was more to this life than the grave, that there was a resurrection. And I think that's also true for us in America. I think maybe we think we know more about the Bible than we really do. We don't spend time reading and studying God's word and then we come up to a decision and we're like, I don't, I don't know what I should do. And sometimes those situations are spelled out directly in scripture what we should do. But we don't have the heart of the psalmist who said in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Who said in verses 103 to 105, How sweet are your words, that I might, uh, that honey to my mouth, through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As Christians, we believe that. God's Word is God's Word. That in Scripture, God gives us everything that we need to live a life that's honoring to Him. And when we don't follow that, when we don't know that, we get way off base. Like, for example, you think about the Protestant Reformation you know, back hundreds of years ago. The church before the Protestant Re- Reformation was selling indulgences. Which was basically one uh, form of indulgence was that if you paid a certain amount of money to the church, your loved one who passed away could move from purgatory into heaven. I don't see that in scripture anywhere. But they fo- didn't focus on the scripture. They got so far away from the scripture that they started just adding their own ideas. And I think that happens in our day often. Because often we know a little bit of scripture. We know a tidbit of the scripture. Then we fill in the blanks with the rest. So we know that God is love. Most people know that. And then so we say, well, it's okay if we have sex outside of marriage. It's okay if we live together because God is love and we love each other. Or God is love, so it's okay that we're homosexual because God is love. And the most important thing is that we just love each other we get way off base from what God intended, from what God has really said in His Word. And so we're not just to take bits and pieces of the Scriptures and kind of form our own worldview around them. We're to continually allow the Scriptures to inform our worldview, to continually check us, to continually cause us to repent of things that are keeping us from God. When we don't do that, it causes us to get way off track. There's an article that was done by a man named Charles Chu. And he made the statement, in the time you spend on social media each year, you could read 200 books. Here's how he did the math behind that. To do 200 books, it would take 417 hours a year. Now you think about that, it seems like a a lot of time, 417 hours a year. But Chu breaks it down this way. He says... 417 hours that sure feels like a lot but what does 417 hours really mean let's try to get some more perspective he says here's how much a single american spends on social media and tv in a year 608 hours on social media 1642 hours on television he says, "Wow, that's twenty-two hundred and fifty hours a year spent on trash. If those hours were spent reading instead, you could be reading over a thousand books a year." Now, Chu wasn't a Christian; he was just kind of writing from a secular perspective. But I kind of I went through and I calculated uh, kind of Bible reading, and you think about how long would it take to read from the Bible from cover to cover, and I got different estimates. The best one that I uh, was able to find was that it would take about 57 hours for the average reader to read through the Bible from cover to cover. And if you calculate that out, that in the time that the average American spends on social media and television, if they spent that time reading the Bible, you'd be able to read the Bible from cover to cover 39 and a half times. 39 and a half times we don't really have any time to read the Bible, do we? Two, again, who's not writing from a Christian perspective, says this. Here's the simple truth behind reading a lot of books or the Bible. He didn't write that. That's added. It's not that hard. We have all the time we need. The scary part, the part we all ignore, is that we're too addicted, too weak, and too distracted to do what we all know is important. You know, and given that example, it's not to say that social media is wrong or television is wrong. That's, you know, sometimes we, you know, have a long day at the office and we just, you know, want to come home and just kind of crash on the couch. You know, I get that. You know, and it's not wrong to, uh, you know, watch television or be involved in social media. But we do the things that are important to us. And if we say we don't have time to read the Bible, but we're spending time on uh, these other things, there's a problem. There's a belief problem. that Maybe we don't really believe the Bible is that important. Maybe we don't really view it as God's word. As a conduit of God's power to us. Failure to believe in Jesus is a failure to believe in God's power. And it's also a failure to know God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your love for us. Even when we fail. Even when we go astray if we're your children you turn us back that through your word through proclamation of your word you cause us to repent and turn back to you Lord we thank you for that grace Lord I pray that as we live our lives that we would never doubt your power and authority that we would believe that you are who you say you are that you can do what you say you can do you're a God who raises the dead you're God who can do things that just blow our minds. And God, as we're facing situations and circumstances in our lives, I pray that we would realize that there's nothing that's too big for you. There's nothing that you can't handle. There's nothing that will catch you by surprise. And so we can bring our request to you, big and small, and cry out to you knowing that you hear us and also that you reward those who come to you and that you have the power to do what you want. Lord, also I pray that we would view Your Word as the psalmist did in Psalm 119. That we would hide it in our hearts. That it would become a part of who we are. That it wouldn't just be a book, just an academic exercise. That we would realize that it's an expression of Your Word, an expression of Your Gospel. And that we would do everything we can to honor You In our lives through it. That we might not sin against you. That we would stay on the path of following you. With all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. Because that's what you've called us to. But also we know that's what you're worthy of. Lord we can't do that in our own strength. It's only by your power working through us. That we can do that. God give us the strength to do that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.